friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. It's good to see you guys and gals. Thanks for coming out this morning. Um, we're going to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 62. And before I read this text, um, this is my way of helping you read the Old Testament the way Jesus did. Whenever we read the Bible the way the writers of the New Testament read the Old Testament, it just seems weird. I don't want it to seem weird. I want it to be normal. This is the new normal. Uh, we need to read the Old Testament the way Jesus read the Old Testament. And here in Luke chapter 9, we have a story of how Jesus read the Old Testament. So Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 62. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking with him. That's Jesus. And they appeared in glory and were speaking about his exodus, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but as they awoke, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him and just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things that they had seen. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I beg you and your disciples to cast it out. But they couldn't. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was being brought forward, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebu rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. But they did not understand the saying. Its meaning remained concealed from them so that they could not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. An argument arose among them concerning which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it in it by his side and said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for the least among all of you is the greatest. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. And when the day drew, days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. And on their way, 
They entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for his arrival, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds have the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and the conversations in all of our hearts together be pleasing to you, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. Um, I want to give you all a picture. One of the things I really like to do, I hope you like to do this, and it's painstaking, but it's beautiful when the aha comes on, is I love teaching people how to ride a bike, little kids to ride a bike. Because when a bike... When a kid gets on the bike, he says, if I just sit on the bike, it falls down. But if I move, what happens to the bike? It stays up. And as I teach kids, you have to be behind the kid, right? And you've got to hold on to the, the, either the post or you've got to hold on to the rack. I like it better if there's a rack there. And when the kid starts moving, you tell him, get your eyes ahead. Don't look down. If you look down, you're going to fall. But if you look ahead, you're going to stay up. And it feels like this is so weird. This shouldn't happen. This shouldn't happen. This is unusual. This is strange. Then all of a sudden, the kid goes, this is not strange. This is normal. I can do it. It goes from being weird to normal. And when that happens, I think, ah, that's so beautiful. Because it seems so weird, and it's not weird. It's normal. What I want us to begin to do, this is okay with you, I think when we read the Old Testament, it's like learning to ride a bike. And if we listen to the writers of the New Testament as they look into the Old Testament, when we hear what they say about the Old Testament, it sounds weird. It's not weird. It's the new normal. We have to read the Old Testament the way the New Testament writers read it. In particular, when God comments on the Old Testament and Jesus is God, that's the way we should read it. So the reason I, I picked this text in Luke chapter 9, that Luke chapter 9, this, this beginning part deals with the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is on the mount, and I'll just, it's kind of a picture, I'll show you what happens. Jesus is on this mount, and then he reveals that he's fully God. And the apostles are asleep. Uh, how they can sleep through this, I mean, it's amazing, right? They must really have a, I don't know, they must have had these ancient sound machines, but how can they sleep through this bright light and this, this glorification? But they slept, they woke up, and they were kind of freaked out because Moses and Elijah, who they recognized, were talking with Jesus, and it, it really freaked them out. Like, these are the great authorities, these are the authorities, they're the writers of the Scripture. Moses wrote the law, Elijah is the prophet who represents all the prophets, and they're talking with Jesus. And then a cloud descends upon all of them, and it darkens everything. Now they're really scared. And then a voice out of the cloud begins to speak. And we all know who that voice is. 
That voice is God the Father. And God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. What God the Father is saying, you think Moses has authority because he wrote the law. You think Elijah has authority because he spoke prophetically. But the one who has all authority is who? Jesus. Listen to him. And they got it. Kind of. Because we still put authority in things besides Jesus, like written things. And God the Father says, no. Jesus is who I've sent to describe me. And Jesus is who God the Father sent to disclose or reveal who the Father always has been. So then we have a story that after that happened, they got off the mountain. There's a young boy who's being possessed by a demon. And the father asks for help, and Jesus says, oh, perverse generation, how long do I have to put up with you? He says, I asked your disciples to figure this out. And Jesus seems like he's very upset. And the question is, who's he upset at? Is he upset at, 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 at the boy? Is he upset at the parent, the father? Is he upset at the apostles? I don't know, he's upset at the whole system of kids being, people being isolated and being possessed and being expelled and excluded. So Jesus heals him. So there's a demonic possession, and Jesus heals this boy and returns him to his father. Second thing happens. The apostles, after they see this, says, they say, uh, which one of us are varsity, and then which ones are JV? I think me, I think James, John, and Peter are varsity because we saw the Mount of Transfiguration, and the rest of you guys are JV. They had an argument. They had an argument about religious exclusion. Who's more exclusively religious than others? And so Jesus says, I know what you guys are thinking. You think it's better, you think you're better if you exclude people. No, 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 no. He says, you've got to include people. It's not about excluding at all. And then another event happens. There's someone also who's inhabited, possessed by a spirit that's destroying a human being. And someone is healing this person, and the apostles say, you're not one of us, you shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus says, what? This guy's helping someone, but because he doesn't follow us directly, you don't want him to do that? You guys are nuts. Let him do his work. And then another thing happens. Jesus goes to Samaria. Huh, that reminds us of Elijah. In 1 Kings, actually 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah's in Samaria. Can I just tell you the story just briefly of what happened in Samaria? Elijah is in Samaria. The king falls through a lattice. The king of Israel falls through a lattice. He gets hurt and says, I don't know if I'm going to live. Um, let's, go ask the, uh, let's go ask the soothsayers. Let's go ask the gypsies. And let's go ask um, uh, the foreign gods if I'm going to live. And Elijah hears from the Lord like, this guy, he's the king of Israel, but he's not even consulting God. He's consulting um, like, you know, tarot card readers and all that kind of stuff. And Elijah says to the king, you shouldn't do that. And then the king sends a delegation of 50 guys to, Eli to Elijah and says, we would like to visit you. And Elijah says, uh, I don't think so. And he rains down fire from heaven. And then the king says, we'd really like to see you. And Elijah says, I don't think so. He rains down fire from heaven and consumes another 50. And then by the time he sends a third delegation, Elijah says, that's enough. Okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then they have a consult. So here's the situation. You've got Elijah 
raining down fire from heaven in Samaria because the Samaritans were doing something wrong in Elijah's view. And so here we have Jesus in Samaria. He goes there and the Samaritans don't receive him. And James and John, the sons of thunder, say to Jesus, do you want us to rain down fire from heaven? What were they thinking about? 2 Kings chapter 1. What did Jesus say? Uh, no, I don't do that. And I'm God. I don't do that. And we say, huh, that's weird. And I'm saying, no, that's not weird, that's normal. That's how we read the Old Testament. Because Jesus is God and Elijah isn't. And Moses isn't. And James isn't. And John isn't. And Peter isn't. Jesus is. He's God. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the new normal. Now the other thing I want you to see is like this pattern that goes on. There's a pattern of, well, there's a pattern of excluding and expelling people. And Jesus says, that's never me. Have you ever wondered like when, when decisions are being made, if God's in a decision? Here's how I'm learning. I'm kind of a pattern watcher. I think God's in decisions when these things happen. This is how God works in the Bible. God pursues people to heal them. And once he, as he pursues people and desires to heal them of their sin, of their alienation, of their bad thinking, of their bad hearts, he also wants them to participate. So God pursues people so that they would participate. Have you ever noticed the language in the scripture regarding demonic work? It possesses. It possesses. It strangles. It excludes. God never possesses. God pursues, and he asks you to participate. Have you ever seen that pattern? It's always there. God pursues people and asks them to participate. But, but, but Gollum and, and selfish people, they possess and squeeze the life and exclude. So the first thing that happens is that this, this spirit is, is squeezing the life of this boy, and now he's excluded from being with his dad. And what does Jesus do? He steps into that situation. He stops the excluding. He heals the boy. And he reconciles the boy with his dad. So there was an exclusion and a possessing and a killing that was happening. And Jesus stopped it. And we know, oh, that's demonic. And then we have religious guys. And the second thing, the religious guys, James, Peter, and John, all the apostles are saying, which one of us is greater? And you think these things are so different. Oh, no, they're not different at all. It's the same pattern. Do you see what Luke's getting at here? It's the same pattern. What were you, like, who can we exclude so that we feel better? Who was on the Mount of Transfiguration? Raise your hand. Only three of us. We are first. You're excluded. We feel better. Let's exclude you and only include us and we feel better. It's the very same pattern that happened right there. And Jesus says, you guys don't get it. He says, and he took a child and says, you have to have communion with children. You have to include them. Don't think you're better than them. And we think, oh, those two things are so different. They're not. We just call one religious, and we call the other one demonic. And frankly, they're both demonic. You know what the word Satan means, right? Satan means, that the word, we find it in the book of Job, and we find it really, and also um, uh, Ezekiel mentions it quite a bit, and then it comes about a lot in 
um, well, Psalms we mentioned a little bit, and then it comes a lot in the New Testament. But the word Satan is simply from the verb to exclude, to accuse, to obstruct, to isolate. And Jesus never excludes. He does what? He reconciles. So the first one, this kid was excluded. We think, huh, was he sinning or his dad sinning? Was he, was he playing with the Ouija board? See, we always want to blame him like he was doing something wrong. He was just excluded. And Jesus touched him. Oh, by the way, he's God. And he, he, he got close to that kid. And he healed him. And he, he, he reconciled him with his father. And then you have these religious guys wanting to exclude other religious people and calling it holy. It's an act of violence. And you think, oh, Mark, really? Okay, let me remind you all. There's four ways you can do violence. One is you can physically harm somebody. You can physically harm someone. That's violent, right? Punching them is violent. You can say violent words and harm someone. That's the second way you do violence. The third way you can do violence is simply by turning your back on people, excluding them. And the fourth way you do violence is when someone has harm done to them, when you and I do nothing. That's violence. We have a category that Jesus doesn't have. It's called sacred violence. Peter, James, and John were willing to exclude members of the holy community in the name of religion. Who's greatest? Do you guys see it? It's sacred violence, and Jesus says, I'm so tired of that. That's satanic. Well, then the third thing happens. After they argue about that, um, the third, oh, I have to, uh, let me see. The third thing that happens then is, oh, yeah, there's a guy that is trying to help someone in the name of, he was not an apostle, but he saw someone who was having violence done to him. And the apostles didn't recognize him. And he was helping this person who was inhabited by a malignant spirit to be healed. He was helping someone. And then in the name of Jesus, the apostles went to this guy and says, uh, you're not authorized, sorry, can't do that. You're excluded from us. You're excluded. And Jesus goes, what? Let the guy alone. He's including people. Stop the sacred violence stuff. Do you guys see the pattern here? And then it just escalates. It gets to Samaria. And in Samaria, Jesus goes to Samaria and he sets his face towards Jerusalem because he's going to die for us to expose our violence. This is what we do. They go to Samaria. And then Luke is very ambiguous here. I love, Luke is so nerdy. Like, of all the, the writers of the New Testament, like, Luke was definitely like a Harvard guy. Right, Knights? We, I mean, he's, re, he's just, he's super smart. And the way he arranges his words is so different and beautiful. Very erudite, very classic Greek, not Koine or common Greek. And Luke says that Jesus was going, he set his face to Jerusalem, and they did not receive him as he went to Samaria. And we think, who didn't receive him? The Samaritans didn't receive him. But also Luke is saying this, but neither did the apostles. You know why they didn't receive him? Because all along, Jesus is participating with people and healing them, and they're expelling people, expelling people, and expelling people. And they think they're with Jesus, and they don't even understand what they're doing. They're so addicted to their sacred violence, they don't even know when they do it. They don't even know when they do it. 
And they come to Samaria, and Jesus says, and they did not receive him. And then when the, the apostles saw that Jesus was not being treated well by Samaritans, they thought, oh yeah, we can do, uh, we just saw Elijah. Uh, oh, Lord, come on, a little fire. Come on, a little fireworks right now. Bring it. And Jesus rebuked them. And if you actually look in your King James Bibles, now we have most of our, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy here. Our Bibles come from two families of, of, of Scripture. One is called the Alexandrian text. One is called the Byzantine text. We tend to use the Alexandrian text. The, NIS, the NIV and the ESV and um, the NRSV, we use the Alexandrian text, which tend to be older. This family of texts tends to be older, but smaller in number. And they, why are they called Alexandrian? They come, most of them do. But there's less of them. And the Alexandrian texts tend to be briefer. But the Byzantine texts, which are larger in number, and a large number of them were housed actually in the Vatican, and they were found on, near Mount Sinai. That's kind of like, like the King James text. That's the King James Version. If you look at the King James text in Luke chapter 9, it adds certain things. That's omitted here. So when it says, and Jesus rebuked them, he actually refers to Elijah and says, yeah, I don't do that. I don't do that at all. That's not me. I'm God. I don't do that kind of thing. You guys do that. I don't do that. But did Jesus actually say that? Oh, it, it doesn't matter. They're being rebuked for that reason. He's basically saying, I don't exclude. You exclude. So what's this whole idea of a hard habit to break? A hard habit to break is the pattern of sacred violence all in the name of God. We do it. I do it. You do it. The, the hardest things to, to overcome at times, it's one thing to be excluded from making the play. Like, oh, I tried out for Juliet. I didn't make it. She made it? Oh, she's a teacher's pet. But she's also pretty good. At least I got a role in the play. You know the rules of engagement going up. There's only one Juliet. Not everybody can be Juliet. It's okay. It's also okay to be excluded in a raffle. Because after all, it's not like, unless it's a rigged raffle, but, but it's a raffle. We don't like being excluded from our friends. It happens sometimes. Your best friend when you're in fourth grade or fifth grade all of a sudden gets new friends, and then it's sixth grade, and they try to exclude you. And that hurts. Why did they do that? Because they feel better by having someone excluded. And it really hurts when it's done in the name of God. No, you can't come here because you're not one of us. If you want to become one of us, I'll think about it. Clean up your ways and be like one of us. No, that's not how Jesus works. He pursues people. He touches them. He participates with them and he changes them from the inside out. Some of your deep religious wounds are because you have been excluded or someone you love has been excluded. And you know deep in your bones that this is not right. You know it. But where do you find it in the Bible? God is trying to tell us something in, in I think, Luke chapter 9. And Jesus says, let this sink into your ears in Luke chapter 9. I'm going to be betrayed. Why do we exclude people? 
We exclude people if they're guilty. But if they're not guilty, if they're just like one of us, we feel bad about excluding them. I find it interesting in our, in our political process that when either, um, and we have two parties, I sometimes wish we had like 20, um, but we have two parties, and whenever one party speaks of the other, they say, my opponent, they don't call him by name. They don't say, my opponent, who's a mother and a wife and has three children, here are their pictures. They don't do that. You know why they don't do that? Because that would humanize them. We simply say, my opponent says this, boo, boo. And the other side says, well, my opponent says this, my opponent wants to take your puppies and put them all in a puppy mill. Boo, but don't call them by name, don't humanize them. So what, the way that we exclude people is that we don't even humanize them. We don't even humanize them. But if we begin to humanize them, then we have to ask, are they actually guilty of what we think they're guilty of? But what if they're not guilty? If they're not guilty, then we're just mean people. And when Jesus said, I am going to be betrayed, I'm going to go to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, you're going to love me. And then in this weird anthropological way, a week later, everyone is just divided over me. And you guys are all anxious. And you don't know what to do. So you're going to conspire and say that I did something wrong. You're going to say that I have a demon. And that's exactly what they said. He's got a demon. Get rid of this guy. And you're going to take all your hate and anger and you're going to put it on me and you're going to exclude me. But I'm going to show you something. I'm not guilty of those things. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not the goat of God. He's sinless. And we put our sins on him. And then we realize this is what we do. And Jesus reveals to us the mechanism. To destroy the mechanism. To destroy it. So that we don't do it anymore. And then he gives us his spirit. But it's so interesting to me how it's just a hard habit to break. I've confessed to you before, um, I, you know, when, I, when someone cuts me off on the freeway, you've got to pray for me because I yell at them. But I do exactly what the apostles did. I think I'm better than that person. I'm the A-plus driver. You're obviously an 18-year-old from Plano in daddy's truck. And you're just a... Oh! I, so I demonize him. But I, I don't say, an 18-year-old from Plano whose name is, you know, uh, Marvin, and he's a straight-A student who just was distracted because he's talking to his grandma on the, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to make him guilty of sin so that I can yell at him. I just did sacred violence, and why that one act, by doing that, by excluding him, I feel better about me. I had this religious experience of peace. And that's just not the way it's supposed to be. So the beauty of this text is that, that Jesus loves people with a hard habit to break. He never let go of the Samaritans. He never let go of, of that man who didn't recognize Jesus, who was trying to heal the man, who, the boy who was being possessed by a devil. He didn't let go of his apostles. He hangs on to all of us and says, I will give you my spirit, but please don't do violence in my name. I don't do that. It's got to stop. And it's especially difficult not to do that when it's been done to you. I spent some time in Dearborn, Michigan. 
because Dearborn, Michigan has the largest population of Muslims in the United States. Did you all know that? You can go to McDonald's in Dearborn, Michigan and get Halal McNuggets. And you think, I don't even know what that means. Halal McNuggets means this, that the Muslim Imam blesses those chicken McNuggets so that Muslim people can eat the McNuggets at the McDonald's restaurant. And that the valedictorian speech when I was there, I think this was in 2009, was given in Arabic because that was the native language of the high school graduate. There are no dogs in the streets of Dearborn, Michigan because Muslim people don't tend to have dogs because dogs are dirty, according to them. But cats are everywhere. They love cats. I actually have a good friend who's Muslim um, who fixes up my car, and he's got a lot of dogs too, but he's a farmer, so he's just very interesting. He's a great mechanic, by the way. And he's like 30% the cost of other mechanics. Not kidding. So if you need a great mechanic, I got one for you. He's awesome. But when I was there, I met some Christians. Christians who were raised Muslim. And I said, oh, and now that you love Jesus, you, you tell your Muslim friends about Jesus. They said, nope. We want nothing to do with them. And that was very consistent. I thought, what do you mean? They said, it was so oppressive being a Muslim. We have such liberty. I know, but don't you love them? I mean, that's your grandma and your mom. No. Nope. Keep them away. It broke my heart. I thought, what is it about us as Christians, and even new Christians, that want nothing to do with, with people? All in the name of God. That's so different than Jesus, who's God. Because sacred violence is a hard habit to break. And it's authorized in the church all the time. And I just want us to say, we can't do that anymore. There's a new normal. And the new normal is this. We treat people and the way God treats people. He pursues people with healing and he participates with them. We don't believe the lie. And here's the lie. The lie is that God's pursuing us because he doesn't like us. And if God gets a hold of me, my life is over. If God really gets a hold of me, it's bad. All the fun I wanted to have is not going to happen. All my friends are not going to like me. God pursues me to separate me and make me miserable. And God doesn't pursue us to make us miserable. He pursues us because he loves us so that we'll participate with him and with others. Satan pursues to make people miserable and separate them. Not God. We've got to get rid of the lie. I've told you before, I, I thought this was so strange, but when I was a, a young Christian, I saw, I was in church uh, with, with my, at that time, my girlfriend, Marianne, who I later married, and we're still married. She's right there. And, and we were in church, and after the service, Donnie, who's the son of the preacher, he was like the wild child kid, but he was a PK, so he got away with it. Donnie came forward, and his, his shoulders were just... <laughs> and it was an okay sermon, but he was just, he was just like heaving. Like <laughs> and he whispered to his dad, and his dad, and this, you know, we're singing, just as I am. One more time, one more time. Donnie's... <laughs> Like, oh, like, oh, i got to hear what's going on with this. And then all of a sudden, Dr. Brandon's about to speak. And, and then Donnie said, let me say something, Dad. I just want you all to know that I've surrendered to the ministry. <laughs> like, I'm going to be a pastor and my life's over. <laughs> oh, 
oh, oh, oh man. And, and everyone's like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I remember thinking, this is so weird. So God is coming into your life to exclude you and make you miserable? No. That's sacred violence. God doesn't do that. By the way, Dunny never went into ministry. Because I think he knows that God wants him happy. Oh, he maybe did for a year. Is that right, honey? I think he never did. Okay. He never did. Right, Tammy, he didn't. He didn't. So he realized that, that was the lie. But see, this is the, we, we, we think that when God comes in, when God comes into our life, he's going to make us miserable. No, that's what, that's what, say, that's the satanic stuff. That's the accuser. God comes into our life to heal us, pursue us, so that we participate with him. So here's my, my, my hope for you. I, I would like you to recognize the times in your life that you are like our brothers and sisters who commit sacred violence. And when you do, say, huh, boy, that's a hard habit to break. God, would you give me the, the presence of mind not to do that again? Because I hate it when it happens to me. And if we all began to do that, can you imagine the revolution that would take place in the church? One of my favorite saints is St. Maximus the Confessor. And I'll just close with this. He's the only saint, one of the few saints, that the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church, and the Catholic Church, the Church of the West that we come from, have all agreed he's a saint. You know why he's called Maximus the Confessor? Because, well, and he was a monk. He was not a theologian. He was not a pastor. He was a monk. And he was so sought after, and he was so controversial because he loved people. This is what Maximus would do. People were kicked out of church. And Maximus, everyone said, oh, he loves Jesus. He would say, where's the guy that was kicked out? Well, we kicked him out. He goes, oh, I'm going to go spend time with that guy. What do you, I'm going to go hang out with him. I'm not going to exclude him. I'm going to make sure he's got a friend. Well, that's weird. And then he started talking about that, that God is love and that God is comprehensive love. And the church says, you have to shut up. So guess what the church did? They cut out his tongue. We cut out his tongue so he couldn't talk. And even then, he was so sought after by people, Christians and non-Christians, he was just writing letters. And guess what the church did then? We cut off his hand. And then 18 years after he died, everyone examined everything Maximus did and said, um, I guess he's not a heretic. He's one of us. Yeah, he's a saint now. He's one of us. Okay. All right. Let's move on. Why did, we, why did we exclude him? Because he refused to exclude anybody. He said something in the ambiguum that I'll never forget. These words, one of my favorite sayings by Maximus. I said it to you all. God is participation only. You want to know God? You want to know where God is? Where there's participation, not exclusion. God is participation only. And so when I look in the Bible, where, is people where, where are people participating with others to bring healing and redemption? That's where God is. But where there's exclusion, God's not there. And Maximus, when this happened to him, people would say, Maximus, don't you want to get him? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. I pray for them. They're my brothers and sisters. They'll figure it out one day. He was not vengeful towards those who did these things. But he's called the confessor, because he couldn't speak. All he could do was listen to people, pray for them, love them. 
This is the revolution I think the church needs. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus includes people. We exclude them. Jesus includes and participates. We exclude. This table is meant to include people. Bring them in. When you find out that you do this, don't be horrified at yourself, but don't make excuses. Say, Lord, thank you for showing me this. I know you love me. I'm really sorry. But boy, it's so reflexive. How do we know it's reflexive? Well, have you ever looked at someone and they, they make a, you know, if I went to you guys this might round, and if I did this, I said, hey, you guys, good morning. You'd say, well, to you too. We tend to copy people. Like, if I do this to you, you want to do this right back at me. We just, we just reflect, like, no, no, no. We, can, we can't do that anymore. Because we're Christians. And we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength of our neighbor as ourselves. And we're part of the good news of reconciliation and redemption and healing. And we're into breaking a bad habit. And sacred violence is a bad habit. It's a bad habit, but it's deep. And it's so easy. And it's so satisfying. Doggone, it's like a really good, it's like a, it's like a Snickers bar right out of the refrigerator. It's so good to just give it to somebody. But it's good for this long. And then we get addicted to it. But that's, Jesus says, you can't do that. I give you me. And I hang on to people. And I include people. And as my kids, sisters, I included you. I live in you. Now you include others. And tell them that I want them home. And that's what we do in Jesus' name. Because we follow him. And he breaks our hard habit. He's the habit breaker. We're in him. But part of the way he breaks it, he makes us aware of it. So as we get aware, we just say, thank you, Lord. Forgive me. And he does. And we pray for those who persecute us. And we see their faces. And we make them human because they are human. In fact, they're made in God's image. I'll close with this, but I found this so profound. Um, Colin Powell, I think I've told you all about this. When he was a boy, he, he lived with his grandmother. And um, Grandma Powell heard Colin talk about um, a kid in his class who wore glasses. And Colin was making fun of him. Like, there's this kid in our class, he wears glasses. We call him Four Eyes. And Grandma, oh, she's a wise Christian woman. You know what she said? She said, Colin, come here, baby. And he said, okay, Grandma. He said, we're going to pray to God. And I want you to say this. Dear Lord, we're going to pray for four eyes. Goofy looking four eyes. Say that to God right now, honey. Silence. We're going to pray for four eyes. God, go ahead, Colin, say it. We're going to pray for goofy looking four eyes. He said, no, ma'am, I can't say that. And she said, why not, honey? He goes, because God made that boy. She said, that's right. You see what she was doing? She was exercising a demon out of that boy. No sacred violence. Not as a follower of Jesus. He never forgot that lesson. May God do that for us. Anytime we do this, say, Lord, I want to pray for that 18-year-old kid, that idiot. Okay, no, I can't say that. I can't say that, Lord. 
I want to pray for that kid. Keep him safe. Surround your angels around him. Get him off the phone. Because his parents are used to him, you know, staying alive. There you go. It's a hard habit to break, but Jesus has a way of breaking it. By just bringing it to him. And his grace abounds in us. He loves us, but we've got to break this. And we can by the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, um, you love us. You've given us your son, Jesus. And give us the grace to break this bad habit of excusing the way that we exclude people and the way that we've been excluded. Lord, forgive us our hurts when we've been excluded, but teach us not to imitate that activity, especially in your name. Teach us, Lord, to love you with all our heart, mind, and soul and strength, and by your grace, to love our neighbors as ourselves. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.